This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, I'm Jonathan London. I'm the least informed person on this panel. <laughs> Not true. Um, Not true. But I got a good Rolodex. So I put together the most informed people to talk to you guys about kaiju versus men in suits, which I think is one of the greatest phenomena in both TV and film to ever come out of TV and film. And it seems like it's only getting bigger. That's what we're going to be talking about. I want to introduce uh, my panelists. This is Tommy Yoon. Uh, Tommy, why don't you tell them, uh, t- tell the audience a bit what, 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 what makes you, uh, you know, what your experience is, is working with giant robots or kaiju or men in suits. Yeah, I, I was just here because they were telling me that uh, it was about people in rubber and there were a lot of zippers involved. But, uh, <laughs> uh, no, I, uh, uh, this is going to give, give, uh, date me a little bit, but uh, I, m- my uh, childhood experience in terms of that genre was really defined by Ultraman. Uh, anybody remember Ultraman, the very yeah. first season? Yeah, that's right. And uh, I also watched a little bit of Spectre Man, which was a similar series that came out about, at about the hey, cool, <laughs> came out about the same time. And uh, that's kind of like the, the subgenre of uh, kaijin. Uh, but, uh, um, yeah, I, I love that stuff. And uh, it's amazing to see like, how it's all coming mainstream with stuff like uh, uh, Pacific Rim now. And uh, what do you do today? You work at Harmony Gold? Uh, on, on Robotech. On Robotech. Yes. So I think this guy kind of knows what he's talking about when you're talking about giant robots. Uh, next one. Gregory Snagoff, who also has some Robotech in his uh, IMDb profile, I think, if you guys uh, get on your Just computers. a little. That's an uh, understatement. Yeah, it's an understatement. <laughs> G- Greg, why don't you tell the audience about... Well, well careful. Uh, why don't you tell the audience about your background with Robotech, though, your experience working on it? Uh, I'm one of the creators of Robotech, wrote it and directed it, and uh, voiced a lot of the characters, uh, along with Carl Masick, and um, been living it for... Now nearly 30 years. Wow. 28 years. So if the Tobey Maguire movie happens, he's playing you, is right. what you're telling me. Like, Tobey Maguire, he'll be playing, yeah, he'd yeah, be playing he'll be you. Playing All right, that I works. never looked better. <laughs> <laughs> he'd be crying every movie, and it's <laughs> like, oh, my robot won't get up. Uh, <laughs> it still does. <laughs> he's right. <laughs> Timing. Timing is everything. And Greg, what was your first like uh, exposure experience? Where, where did you fall in love with like kaiju or men in suits or Japanese culture? Uh, shortly before Robotech, mm-hmm. but that's essentially where it where it came from. That's where I got most of my beginning experience, and we worked on everything else that came came down the line. And with Carl, when he started uh, Streamline Pictures, so we got heavily into anime. Was there an influence for Robotech? Were there, I mean, what influences were, were there for Robotech when you guys were putting it together? Prior? Yeah. yeah like, like, what influenced you guys to... Well, I, I was raised on pulp science fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if anybody has ever seen them. Nobody here is old enough to remember them. But pulp science fiction was double face. It was so cheap that they would give you two novels... One facing this way, one facing the other way. I don't know if they even exist anymore. Uh, And uh, my father had a gigantic collection of this stuff, and I read every single one of them. So all of that stuff was brought to Robotech and other projects. That's cool. 
and uh, my good friend F.J. DeSantos over there. Uh, F.J. currently has a book out from Arkea. You can get it done on the floor. Uh, Cyborg 009. Why don't you talk a little bit about that book and your love for all things both right. Japanese and... Um, oh, he's got it. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, your kind of experience with it. Where did you fall in love with this culture? Well, I fell in love with it thanks to what they did. So I sort of... Just before they started doing Robotech, I think I was the right age for that to just blow my mind open. But before that, I had gotten into like Gotcha Man and uh, Yamato when they were brought here under the, you know, as Star Blazers and uh, Battle of the Planets. I was just the right age, you know, four or five years old. And that triggered an entire love of manga and anime that continues now. And then, sort of in my professional life, I was fortunate enough to develop a relationship with. Ishimori Productions in Japan, which uh, I don't know if you guys know Shitori Ishinomori, who created uh, Kamen Rider and Go Ranger, which became Power Rangers and stuff like that. And uh, I started working with them uh, to get a lot of the original manga over here through like Comixology and sort of, you know, reintroduce those properties similar, you know, to find a new generation of fans. We just did this graphic novel, which I should have shown off. Um, you know, based on Cyborg 009, which was uh, uh, the first, like, comic book super team in Japan. And we've done sort of a, in conjunction with Ishimori Pro in Japan, a new sort of take on it that is completely based on the original, but hopefully opens the door to a new audience. And that just came out and hopefully be an ongoing thing that develops not just in graphic novels and publishing, but bringing a lot of the original animation here, et cetera, and also creating, like, live-action feature films based on these properties. I don't know if that was the right no. answer. And then uh, on the other end, we got George Kerstick. And George, uh, um, Action Pack, you do that for Disney XD? Um, that, was, that was a while ago. Mm -hmm. um, but um, uh, what's interesting about this panel, what's, what's cool to be here, is actually one of my inspirations was a scene from Robotech, right? For Action Pack. Uh, actually, I created a show called Megas XLR. That's, what, that's the one, yeah. sorry. And uh, there was the scene at the very beginning of the series where Rick Hunter first gets in his Veritech and he's like wobbling around and I think he wrecked him in May's house or something. And I was like, dude, if I had a Veritech, I would totally be wrecking Chick's house like to, to look at him and, you know, in there, whatever. Um, so then we created a show kind of based on that mentality of the, the wrong guy gets the right robot. Like what if the, you know, the wrong guy who couldn't pilot a Veritech got it? So that was my inspiration. And, you know, we kind of like the rest is history. Um, and I've always been uh, inspired by, I think we were probably similar generation, like Yamato, uh, Gacha Man, uh, Shogun Warriors, all that wonderfulness. Um, and I've kind of stayed in that realm. Um, I would create my own shows, write comics, and now I write for League of Legends, and we create like monsters and robots all the time. It's pretty amazing. So, yeah. He has an awesome collection of all the original Mattel Shogun Warriors wow. in his house. They're all lined up like in order. And you have all the, do you have the, like the Star Wars based you're ones? Just, you're just outing me now. Sorry, just, no, it's yeah. awesome. You go to <laughs> I mean, how many of you guys drugs. play League of Legends? Like, they had League of Legends championships at the Staples Center next door, and they just sold it out. Were you there? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah and you were like, oh, they're beating up that thing I made up. No, <laughs> no. Uh, my brother was a, a WWE wrestler, and he ended up in the games. And whenever I'd have friends over, and they, they'd play, yeah, I'd always play as my brother, and whenever they'd beat him up, that, like, fraternal instinct would kick in where they're uh -huh. just like You're smacking like, no. my brother around <laughs> yeah. and I'd be like no don't do that stop it just stop <laughs> you, you don't get like that with League of Legends because they're well, monsters they're big monsters that's what we're talking about yeah and, and we've, we've created so many that like you know usually it's it's like one son fighting another son so you're kind of <laughs> like alright as long as one of them wins but I mean on, the, on that on that uh, logic and I mean I'm the, uh, the youngest guy on the panel but I'm catching up uh like, my, my first experience with this was uh, Astro Boy, because, oh, yeah. you know, as a kid, he, he looked like Mickey Mouse, right? <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and it, which is just ridiculous, because, I mean, as a kid, you're sitting there going, okay, big eyes, and he's got the two things on his head. All right, uh, let, let's read it. And you realize that it's a lot more like the Pinocchio story, mm -hmm. and it was just phenomenal, because he had the fragility that Mickey Mouse doesn't have. You know, he, he had those once that Mickey Mouse didn't have. So coming from really like being a, a young child who loved Mickey Mouse, it's your first uh, sort of three-dimensional character is Astro Boy, who had those fears and had that um, sort of uh, going out into the real world uh, feeling and knowing that he was different. 
Yeah. Right. Um, and that was kind of my experience. And then um, it, it seemed like like there was a, a vacuum of, of that kind of stuff in the U.S. for a long time because where I would watch most of uh, the anime was in Mexico visiting my grandparents, mm. and that stuff would play on TV a lot in there. Uh, we it, it, I think that was the first time I saw um, when the lady shot the missiles. Uh, you, uh, what was that? What, what, oh, what, what? Uh, Mazinga. Mazinga? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw that and was like, they can do that? Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> what part do I push? Uh, it, 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 just, uh, it, it blew my mind. In the U.S., it seemed like until things like, uh, it seemed just sporadic. And, and why was that? When you guys work oh. with work rights, why was there such a vacuum in the U.S. for that kind of material? I have no idea, but I had the same experience where I would grow up watching, you know, Warner Brothers shorts or Captain Caveman or something like that. And then you'd catch an episode of Star Blazers and characters died. And you're like, what? So I, I think in the same way you became an adult while watching cartoons, I think a lot of us did. But they yeah. edited them here. Like, the mic, sir, please, oh, please. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. The the, right they there, edited them. When they brought Yamato and Gotcha Man over here, I remember Gotcha Man in particular. Everybody familiar with Gotcha Man? All right, enough of you are. So there were a couple of them. Did you see the ones walking around the floor yesterday? Yeah. That yeah. was insane. And what happened was when they showed Gotcha Man here, they had, you know, reconceived it and they added that little robot and all this crazy stuff that was never in the original. And I was probably about like this kid's age. And I went to Italy with my family just on vacation and there was like one TV in the lobby and I was bored. And I put it on and the Japanese show came on. And they were beating the hell out of each other on the team. And there was no robot. And they were like, it was really violent. And I thought, oh, my God, this is so cool. And that, but that actually, what, that, what happened was it triggered my desire to want more. And I got into, because I was also a big, like, Hong Kong movie fanatic. So I had, like, um, uh, tape trading buddies, like, in Asia. So I had one, like, in Japan, one in Hawaii, et cetera. And they would just, you know, we would all just trade stuff. Before the would, internet, folks. This is before the internet. Yeah, but you didn't have YouTube, so you'd have yeah. to wait you know, six months for a VHS tape with, like, six hours of just low-quality stuff and didn't have subtitles or translation. But you would look at it because it was so beautiful. And then when, when you guys did what you guys did, that blew my mind because it was just like, oh, finally. Because it was like, this is the real stuff, man. Mm -hmm. You know, like, it, it, was, it was the right age to do that. Actually, you were mentioning about the censorship and, like, the limit of, uh, like, what audiences were perceived to be able to handle this content. There was a... Interesting story that Carl Masick, uh, the uh, lead producer on Roboticket, uh, uh, conveyed to me before he had passed away, was uh, when there was the first broadcast of Robotech, um, they were working so fast and furious that uh, all the editorial was actually not finished. It actually was, they were throwing it on the air, like almost finished, but like not Like South quite. Park. Yeah. Like what they do with South Park. When it went into its first, re uh, second rerun, actually, it actually got kind of cleaned up and they like kind of tightened everything up. And they were just getting all this horrible fan mail, just like, you bastards, why did you kill off my like favorite Park. character? You know, like, uh, uh, you know, Roy Foker. And so he got a call from, a, you know, one of the top executives. He was like, hey, Carl, uh, you know, why don't you take this Roy guy? Everybody seems to like him. And, uh, you know, why don't you, like, put him in a hospital, have him call up uh, Rick and say, hey, uh, Rick, uh, I, I didn't really die. I'm okay. Uh, but I'm kind of, I'm not feeling so good. So you take care of my, you know, skull one, you know, Veritech and fly on for me. Go on, brother. You know, I'm paraphrasing. But uh, anyway, Carl realized the power of that scene, which was the whole point of that was to convey the passing of the torch. His young kid lives in his bubble, perceiving the world as a teenager, but then he has to grow, grow up and become a man. Right. And the thing is, if you write around that, okay, maybe little kids feel better, but you've taken away all the impact of the scene. And so... It's know, like not having Uncle Ben die in, yeah. in, in Spider-Man. Like, right. he's, he's Peter Parker, then he's Spider-Man. He yeah, went so to Hawaii. Uncle to Ben yeah. Hawaii. Credit, uh, he ignored <laughs> that. And, right. you know, let that scene stay as is. And uh, let's talk about a little bit about the East and West, which could be a big theme in this. And, of course, we'll get into giant monsters, of course. Uh, I, I don't want to completely ignore the fact that Mr. Gypsy Danger is here. Uh, from the hit film this summer, uh, Pacific this Rim, Mr. Gypsy Danger. the actual robot. Oh, cover your... Stand up, stand up. Stand up, please. Please. Look at him. So, uh, okay. Now turn on the lights. Turn on the lights. I don't. Okay. Now do the sword thing. Uh, okay. Well, it, it, maybe it's not the one from the film. Yeah. Oh, there you go. 
He did it. We, we need all the segments, right? Yeah. yeah it's a, seg- a segmented blade. Um, well, I mean, let, let's talk about that. Is it a cultural thing? And how big of a cultural thing is it that in the East, uh, the kids can watch something like that scene you're talking about in, in, the, in some of the stuff that you're talking about, FJ, but then all of a sudden it comes to the West and it's completely whitewashed. Well, I think, honestly, I think now it's different. I think without these guys doing what they did, you know, without Robotech or things like that, uh, you know, it's funny, you, you could trace the influence. Into the mic, sir, please. Oh, I'm sorry. You can trace the, in- I thought I was a loud mouth to begin with. Um, you can trace all that influence from that sort of era of these things being brought over that maybe at the time they were censored, but beyond a certain point, they weren't anymore and then became like a collector's thing, like, you know, getting the Gotcha Man uncut DVDs became a big deal. But I think it had an impact on, uh, he, he can speak better on animation than I can, but I think it had a big impact on animation, comics, et cetera, that there's a whole generation that grew up with that that didn't want to watch, you know, the Hanna-Barbera stuff. I mean, I love the Hanna-Barbera sure. stuff, but they, but for me, who was, you know, was one of those lucky four-year-olds to see Star Wars on opening night, and, you know, and your whole life was changed, that was the perfect follow-up, because you did have stuff like Obi-Wan Kenobi dying and stuff like that. I think that was just a fortunate era where you could push things forward, and it's led to, I mean, you go downstairs, you look at the amount of manga and anime now, you know, here, it's incredible, and it's had an impact on all things, you know, in animation here, et cetera. I don't think there's much of a difference anymore. In fact, I think there's a very strong appetite for, uh, you know, the, that content from, from Japan, from Asia, et cetera. Here now, I, I just think that exists, and, uh, and it's had an impact on what content is created here. Is that the influence of the Internet in, you know, the, the immediate removal of the VHS-type trade? I mean, I remember getting all the Miyazaki films on fan-for-fan trading and subtitling. Um, I and, think it's a natural and, progression. And what about like things like Power Rangers, Pokemon, things that blew up, and for the first time, that was the the generation that's out there on the floor. That's their Robotech, right? right? That's their uh, new thing. Um, how much of is that? Oh, I think it's all connected. Like, I mean, right. you know, Power Rangers in its original guise, which what I was saying before was created by Ishinomori as Go Ranger, which was the multicolored teenage team, and it just sort of. You know, they, I think they were a little ahead of their time in Japan. So, for example, like Common Rider, Common Rider, and if anybody feel free to correct me, I think was the first, one of the first TV shows that was actually created simultaneously with the manga. I just found this out recently. They were explaining this to me that he, when Ishinomori created that, he was actually doing it so they could build a TV show out of it. So it was transmedia before yeah, transmedia like, became. I hate to use that word, but yeah, it was transmedia before that. So I think there was a lot ahead of its time. And I mean, even by the time Power Rangers popped up here, what, in the 80s? Was it the late 80s? Um, it had been, existed as a manga for 10, 15 plus years before that. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's all, I mean, I, to me, that's the live action attempt of what they, you know, what they did with Robotech. How do you get you know, an audience invested in something that's really popular, you know, this sort of media that's popular overseas. I think that was a really smart way to introduce it to, to the world. And the timing was really good. It's all about timing. It is all about timing. I mean, you have, what, the Godzilla movie comes out. Not that it was a, a great movie, but Roland Emmerich's Godzilla comes out, and you think that it's going to be the resurgence. Pacific Rim comes out, and it does okay in the U.S., in Japan, why would that movie not work? Yet in China, it does better than expected. I mean, why did that movie not work in in Japan? I, you know, I have no idea. I was talking to a few people about it who in Japan who liked it, but I think maybe. And again, anybody can come up and slap me. I, I think because it wasn't rooted in the Japanese culture itself. What I like about it was that it was a, a sort of international view, and that's why it worked for me. Like you could watch. I mean, I love. I love that movie to death. That's why I pulled this kid off the line to come to the thing. Yeah. And not that he doesn't just pull kids off the line. Never yeah. Mind. And <laughs> so, I think there might be a rejection of it because they're looking at it like, you know, it's not Japanese leads. It's, it's not ours. ours. You know, but it's something of ours being presented in a different way. Right. I mean, somebody was telling me that when the Dragon Ball Z live action movie came out in Japan, like I saw somebody cringe. I saw. Yeah. You cringed. Yeah. But. No, I mean, look, I didn't. I wouldn't even see it. But the point is, when it came out in Japan, supposedly all the trailers and all and the movie actually has a written disclaimer from the creator. 
Whoa. Like, I had nothing to do with this. <laughs> um, but, you know, you should, but, you know, in sort of that polite way, saying you should have an open mind that this is someone's interpretation of my work. But, you know, basically it's, you know, I can't use the language in front of little kids, but right. it's a screw you to them. Right. You know, like, don't watch this movie. Why didn't they have that on Avatar The Last Airbender movie? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but that was come on. <laughs> I don't disagree. Yeah. I mean, when these things get reinterpreted, and I say the Roland Emmerich Godzilla, and we should definitely talk about kaiju movies, because um, as a as a writer director, um, I, I know that that Gamera movie is in my future. Um, you know, he's champion of the kids. I love him. I, I do love Gamera mainly because like the little song that they sing and everything. But um, what gets what what are the biggest hurdles in translating something that is beloved by a, a culture? in taking it and trying to make it international, trying to, uh, like with Cyborg 009 or with anything that may be new or Robotech, taking a style or taking a story and trying to introduce it to a brand new culture or, or part of the world. What are the challenges that you guys have found? I'll, I'll go first. So um, I've done it a few times. I had to do it on a, on a small indie property called Star Wars for the Clone Wars. I don't know if you guys <laughs> heard about that. <laughs> but... Um, and I've, I've done it a few other times. I think it comes down to two things. I think it comes down to distilling what the core is, the core theme, and not going against it. And also, uh, as you build out and create new material, do no harm, right? Uh, an example would be, like, suddenly Jedi don't have lightsabers. They have jet scooters, right? right. Woo! You know? And sometimes Hollywood does that, unfortunately, because they don't understand what the core theme is. Like, a Jedi has a lightsaber. A Jedi is on the light side. And Godzilla know. is blank. Exactly. Right. I think maybe that's where, where the, the 90s Godzilla went astray. They were like, let's just blow it up and reimagine it. Oops. Mm -hmm. you know. Um, so I would, I would posit that that is the, the main uh, source of, of the, you know, the spinning off into bad places. What about uh, you guys? Greg? Tommy, what were some of the hurdles that you guys had? Because, I mean, was Robotech originally released as a Japanese production, or was it meant no. to be domestic? It was supposed no, to be a U.S. it was always meant to be domestic. And, and, and what were some of the hurdles? Because you guys definitely were working in a style that was not a domestic style. Uh, well, as every, I think most people know, we completely and utterly rewrote the stories. Mm -hmm. And they were all re-edited, they were rewritten, invented new characters, we, uh, the editing that we did, besides for some story aspects, we would take out things like really, really graphic violence, where a, a bullet was shown in slow motion to enter the flesh and blood squirting out the other side, that sort of thing. We took some of that stuff out. We'd show the hits, but not the excessiveness, that goriness. Yeah. And we took out the stuff that the animators like doing, which are panty shots and stuff like somebody falls up in the panties. The dress goes up and you show the pants, stuff like that. Right. But the rest we we didn't deal with. Was uh, that an edict or a conscious decision knowing that... It was the, knowing the, it would yeah. not be appreciated. Mm -hmm. We Are, just knew that th th that may have some uh, uh, applicability uh, in the East. It would not have been appreciated here. We're just more of a conservative culture, or are we? I mean, what? what I mean, what are those kind of hurdles? Um, well, some of that stuff is just the animators playing around, mm -hmm. and it doesn't really have a place in the story that we're telling. The majority of the animators are college-age males. <laughs> <laughs> and it shows. Right. Yeah. Right. And so that's the kind of stuff that we would, we would take out. There are other aspects such as uh, um, an Eastern audience will settle for 60 seconds of an empty sea and an empty sky, and after 60 seconds, a seagull flies by. They'll sit for that. Right. It, has great, it can have great meaning. We won't. Mm-hmm. We know that we won't, so we're not going to put that in, or we'll cut it down. Where did Things our like uh, cultural, you know, attention deficit? Where, where, where did where was it created? I mean, because obviously, I, I seen you just described as something that to me, uh, you know, wouldn't be uh, a missing like a Kurosawa movie. You know, in a, in a Kurosawa movie, you would see that was Kurosawa kind of like the uh, Hollywood filmmaker in Japan, and so you have a cultural appreciation well, there, for those there kind are of moments. And levels. Right. Well, let's talk it's, about the level. You're not going to you're not going right. to cut them all out just because there's an open scene right. with a seagull. Right. If it has its place, but in animation, uh, you don't have visually the stimulation you have in a Kurosawa movie. You have very flat colors in comparison to to uh, live action, and not much music and no dialogue. 
it's we don't have the attention span for that. Is it because of like uh, you know uh, Looney Tunes and Walt Disney Possibly. and I mean the 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 you know in the twenties thirties when you had a pre cinema cartoon reel? I mean, is that where we were kind of shot in the foot as far as having those kind of films? And it wasn't until kind of the world opened up that we start to have more of an appreciation of that kind of pacing. Uh, partially. Partially, but that's it's just an aspect of our society, not just the animation. Right. Actually, aspect. I think um, I think that has a lot more to do with uh, MTV. The MTV, the introduction of uh, short form programming, which is um, if you look even as uh, recent as the 50s, uh, like uh, a director who was synonymous with big budget productions was David Lean. You know, Lawrence of Arabia, and you would have these expansive shots, which would be minutes long. You know, uh, for you know, unbelievable great. Uh, <laughs> Establishing shots, and this is what people expected back then. And for a big budget film, that was part of the norm. But then you see uh, a big budget uh, director nowadays, uh, say for example Michael Bay, you would scarce, you would be surprised to see a shot last more than you know five seconds. Right. So, um, so that's just the the change of the language of cinema. I I would say I was really, I would say it, it's to uh, Alfonso Cuarón's credit to develop a film that started to reintroduce the long shot again, like right. uh, Gravity. Well, yeah, um, but he had to build there. I mean, with Children of Men, he had yeah, two yeah. or three major yeah, ones in so there. Yeah, so I mean, There's he was building up his reputation yeah. for doing that, but uh, here's a guy who understands a visual style. For today's audience, he can figure out how to find you know, a halfway mark that works for the audience today. But yeah, that, that really is a challenge. Is, um, this also happened with Robotech, is you know, when we were creating the new Robotech, we had older fans whose visual language was still back somewhere in the mid-80s, and we had younger fans whose visual language was developed by stuff that came up more recently. And we had to find some kind of a middle ground that worked, you know, because there were the older fans who looked at their everything and said, why is everybody's, you know, outfit so tight? And why are the women so hot looking, you know? But then, of course, if you look at all anime, it's like, you know, uh, yeah. Anyway, um, getting back to the subject at hand, um, and Robotech also presented a huge challenge uh, for the programming after the original Robotech, the original 85, is that we were stuck with a situation in which we were creating ongoing stories for which the Japanese were never going to create a sequel. Right. Because what Greg's situation was, they had to create uh, 85, an 85 episode series because Japanese series tend to be shorter than American series. Uh, in the US, for syndication, they want to pick up like 65 episodes at a time. They could do this for something like Power Rangers because they had several seasons of Go, um, Rangers. You know, Go Rangers, and they could take the Super Sentai series and they could take like five seasons of it and package it for syndication. However, in the case of Macross, Southern Cross, Mosbita, all of them were too short, and they had to write them together uh, into 85 episodes. And to the credit of the good writing and editorial, you know, everybody bought it hook, line, and sinker. But then now the Japanese were going off and working on other things that had nothing to do with the this new storyline, which was created specifically for Robotech, and hence that's where all these different Robotech spin-offs started to right. come out. It was like a universe that just spontaneously, serendipitously came out of, uh, you know, necessity. Yeah. And now, the, but but I mean, you find fans who are fans of this type of Robotech, and fans who are types of this type of Robotech. Or I'm an, a pre-85 oh, yeah, fan. Yeah, everybody I'm an, will, everybody fan. will say you're doing it wrong. You got to do it my way. But then, of course, you know you. Take any fan and put that fan in charge, and then everybody else will say you're doing it wrong. Right. So it's just like uh, it's like Doctor Who with the different doctors. Yeah. People are like, oh, that's not my doctor. This one's my doctor, yeah. and that one's my doctor, and this one's Toby Maguire will never be my Robotech. Yeah. When you when you have such a large breadth of fans, it is absolutely impossible to follow because who do you follow? Right. So in a situation like that, it it becomes necessary, you know, to kind of lead and direct and just accept all the noise you're going to get back with that and just do a good job. That, that's the most important thing mm -hmm. of all. So you go to your core instincts as a storyteller and try and get the, you know, push the noise out as much as you can. Every now and then it sounds like the fans have a good idea, like in uh, reintroducing a character they killed off, it was popular. I mean, every now and then you have to feed, but I mean, is that kind of the process is listening to yourself as a storyteller, trying to push some of that stuff out, but leave it, you know, enough to kind of grab from, oh, that fan had a really great, sentiment and maybe that I can follow that down or he was interested by this and it's shaping the story in that direction let's talk about giant monsters because like I said earlier Gamera really is my favorite 
And um, but he's obviously not the the daddy. Godzilla is obviously the king daddy of all of them. But then you have Rodan, and you have all these amazing, amazing uh, uh, giant monsters. What is your? And I'm grown, uh, these are grown men on a panel. What is your favorite giant monster? Like, what is your favorite Japanese giant monster? Has it been adapted in a in a different format or a different culture, like a Western culture? And w- how would you like to see it? Uh, I will start with George at the end. What is your favorite big oh, you monster? Oh, you got to start start with me or uh, end with me because this is a hard question. This is a really For hard someone question. Someone like me, I, yeah, I can't. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough. Yeah, come back to me on that. Okay, one. <laughs> all right. I'm gonna skip FJ. I never even thought of it that way. I mean, yeah, because it's all kind of pro I grew wrestling. Up sort yeah, of scared shitless of Godzilla, and I had a sort of. I, I I'm not gonna lie to you. I didn't have an affinity for it till I was in my teenage years. Because I just thought, oh, you know, what? How is that a good guy? He's <laughs> stepping on everybody. You know, I, ha- I had issues with this, right? So, um, so, I, but I enjoyed when it was always Godzilla versus another creature. Yeah, it's like Street that, Fighter. That it's like was a what wrestling I was match. Into. Like it didn't interest me where when he was just stomping on Japan and people are running and how do we stop it? It was more interesting when he would show up, like something would show up, he'd fight it, and then. Always that shot of him just going back into the water, mm. you know, and I loved that. That was when I got older. That was my, uh, that was where you know I started to realize it, how much I like. It's almost it. like the Bill Bixby shot at the end of <laughs> Incredible yeah, Hulk. You know what I mean? <laughs> because because you're right. He's terrorizing an entire like populace. But then when you get a bigger understanding of like uh, how how he is as a metaphor for the environment, et cetera, et cetera, he's actually just a, a world retaliating, which is a major th- Eastern theme. I mean, you do see it in like the uh, Miyazaki movies, like Nausicaa, Princess Mononoke, et cetera. I mean, is there a cultural divide there? And with something like Gareth Edwards' Godzilla, do you want to see that environmental message? Is it something that's inherent to the character of Godzilla? I think you need to. Right. I, I th- you know, another one that got it right was the Korean film The Host. The Host, right. Did that, did that in a, a sort of clever new way also. Uh, I, I'd be disappointed if they didn't have that sort of environmental message to it. I mean, you don't have to hit somebody over the head with it. It doesn't have to be the atom bomb. Be the, yeah, just, right. I mean, I mean... Look, when you think about it, it's it's a it, Godzilla is such a reaction to World War Two and and the bomb and you know all these horrible things that, that this thing came out of it. And I think I reacted to that as you know as a as a kid. And then, but I think you know with all the damage we probably do to this planet now, there's probably a really simple creative way to explain Godzilla. Well, the host was toxic waste. Do you guys ever yeah. see the Korean movie The Host? And, like, the pollution created that thing that lived under the bridge. If you haven't seen The Host, you should definitely go see it. It's really an incredible movie. Uh, And I think one of the best movies is uh, definitely like a monster movie that's Mm -hmm. come out in the last 20 years. Yeah, I love that movie. But that was Toxic Waste. Um, Gareth Edwards. I mean, he's God, Godzilla. I thought Monsters was great. Mm-hmm. You know, if you guys have seen Gareth Edwards' Monsters, where, what is it, like a, a particle, an asteroid, a, a yeah. satellite, something crashes in Mexico and creates an entire, like, zone where these monsters are starting to morph with our ecology and create giant tentacle beasts. That's what I'm hoping Godzilla has something that clever right. to it. Uh, it deserves that. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm not somebody who, you know, one of these fans that they were talking about that's so married to... It has to be like the old way. I mean, it, you know, but there there has to be a clever way to reintroduce these things. You know, we, I think everybody on this panel has, has had to go through that, whether it's him with Star Wars, these guys with Robotech, me with 009. There has to be a conscience, conscious sort of game plan to sit there and go, why, why do people like this? Sort of speaking on what George was saying before, why do people love this? And then you have to sort of build around that mm-hmm. as your foundation. Because if you don't have that, which the Emmerich movie didn't have with Godzilla, that it was just, you know, creatures just going to go wreck stuff. Yeah. And there's no soul to it. Do enough people have that? I mean, do you think that with the, uh, the, the giant monster with the kaiju thing, obviously Pacific Rim did well, but in the states people were talking about it didn't justify you know the amount of pna and the the budget well, i think they marketed and, it wrong yeah they marketed it wrong conversation. how would how would you have marketed i mean pacific rim i would have marketed more of the fun of it everybody see it yeah yeah i th- i think the problem did is did you see it did you see the pacific rim <laughs> <laughs> no? No? okay all right i think if if you had marketed that movie in a way where it it, it was it, it just looked it was such a fun movie, right? It's not, you know, like some of the acting's a little, uh, but you know, but it's so fresh 
like in sort of its approach and world building, and none of that's in it. You know, none of the fun is in it. Uh, I can't remember a trailer where I really saw a human being that much, other than Idris Elba, you know, giving the speech. Right. But, I mean, the the scene with the little girl is the best part of the movie. Right. You know, without spoiling it for people who haven't seen it, there's this little Japanese actress in it. She's the, like, that's the heart and soul of the movie. You know what I mean? Like, like to take that massive destruction and put it on such an intimate scale that leads to, you know, relationship between two of the characters, that to me was the whole movie. That was when I loved it, but then I went, oh, this is where you got me. This is where I'm buying the DVD. This is where, I, you know, I'm going to go buy a toy. This is where I'm going to go talk to kids dressed up in the outfit. And, um, <laughs> but I, I think if you don't have that emotional core, if, if you don't present that emotional core, people won't come. Godzilla will be different because Godzilla's a brand. It's a name. Everybody knows Godzilla. You know what I mean? He knows Godzilla. My grandfather knew Godzilla, et cetera. How do you, you know, the challenge they have is how do you make a good movie that doesn't, uh, you know, disrespect the source material but bring something new to it? Mm-hmm. You know, like, um, they, I mean, they've tried it in Japan before. I just don't know. You know, I haven't seen them in a long time. Right, there have been iterations of, yeah. of Godzilla. And every now and then, I mean, here in L.A., you go to the Egyptian... And they'll show you the different decades worth of Godzilla. And I love sitting in them. And it does kind of become either pro wrestling or Frankenstein versus Dracula after a while. <laughs> where, you know, you, you have your favorite Godzilla movie because he's fighting, you know, Gajira or he's fighting a different monster. And it's like, oh, well, how is he, he going to deal with the fact that it flies? How is he going to deal with the fact that he's got multiple heads? How is he going to deal with the fact, you know, that it's a giant moth? And, uh, but you also s- still have that, that aspect to the character that it's a, a, a creature. I always liked the little baby Godzilla. You know what I mean? Yeah. When you see a little baby Godzilla, it, it's like uh, it, you know, it's like you know, killing a mama bear, and then the cubs come out of the woods, and you're just like, "I am the monster. <laughs> what have I done?" You know what I mean? Because Godzilla still had something to come from, you know, and and like it, it always had something to go back to with the sea, and uh, and that was kind of the, always the heart of these monsters that they weren't monsters; they were monsters created by monsters. You know, and, and they were as reflective uh, as reflective as they were uh, any kind of uh, you know uh, evocation of you know um, national uh, outcry, and um, and and I think that's why they've endured. Do we in the U.S. have a national outcry? Yes, I mean you can see that we do. Uh, that can be channeled into that level of fantasy, you know. And how would you? Do it. We still haven't answered. You're still on the hook for the oh, right favorite on, monster. Right. And, and I mean, Greg, do you have a favorite monster? Tommy, do you have a favorite monster? What's your Greg? Yeah, it is definitely Godzilla. I had the the added um, uh, enjoyment of my father who was in the industry, mm-hmm. um, special effects and makeup and editing would explain to me how those things were done. Right. So uh, even, the force perspective. Even yeah. Well, even things like uh, something. Whatever, whatever it was, how the flame was, how he spit flame or whatever, uh, how they squashed a car without squashing a car, how they squashed a village without actually killing people. Mm -hmm. Uh, It didn't take away from it for me. It was something added to look for. So Godzilla, absolutely, hands down. And do you have a personal favorite Godzilla moment? Do you have a, a moment where... You're like that is Godzilla to me. I mean, is it him just walking along the Tokyo skyline in the original movie? Is it? No, there's no particular moment. No. All right, how about you, Tommy? And George is furiously thinking of his. All right, I'm gonna split. <laughs> it oh, you got yours? I'm gonna split it into two. Uh, All one right. is in the giant robot genre. Is uh, anybody remember Johnny Sacco and the giant robot? Yes. Sure. Okay, uh, the most kick-ass um, robotic monster in that one was remember Cleopatra. Cleopatra was so badass, it was a prototype successor to Giant Robot that wasn't finished, and it couldn't move. It couldn't lift a finger, but it was so badass, it was kicking Giant Robot's, robot's ass by just sitting there. <laughs> and so that was an awesome uh, adversary. But the s- most awesome monster, now this is going to be even more obscure, this is for you Ultraman fans, is um, there was a, a giant monster called, uh, remember Dada? Yeah. We got one All guy. All right, we got one guy in here. Describe uh, Dada to uh, us. Dada looked like the mother of Jigsaw from the Saw series. And oh this episode scared the living bejesus out of me because what happened was there was a woman who was infected with Dada, and her it all happened in shadows because they couldn't show it on TV. Her body burst, and Dada came out of this. And this was 
this was before <laughs> Alien. Core. This was before Alien. And so this person obviously was killed really? horribly, and then this monster came out of it. And so I was just like, you know, so like, you know, by the time I, you know, saw Roy Foker die in Robotech, I was like, that's fine, you know, whatever. <laughs> but, <laughs> I'm out of your body. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm watching Alien, you know, <laughs> coming out of his chest, you know. You know, I've watched Ultraman, you know. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, uh, that was uh, something that stuck with me and uh, made, made it hard for me to sleep at night during the 70s. Wow. Yeah. Hey, George, are you ready down yeah. there? I am. I am. What so, you got? So bear with me. This may not be the answer you want, but I would say um, there was a Western analog that had us in the mindset before Japan started making these movies. And for me, it would be H.P. Lovecraft, right? Yes. And the monsters that he created. Because as a kid, I, for some reason, I was reading those books before I watched these shows. So, like, empowered giant monsters are awesome and terrifying, right? Because these things had an intelligence, and they were far smarter than we were, and they had you know, astral powers, and they could shift dimensions, and you're like, wow, dude, like that. Like, you'd need an entire planet of giant robots to stand against one of those. So that would be my answer. Yeah, yeah. And, that, and they're interdimensional, too, so a planet yeah. won't even help. Yeah, you know, because yeah. it, it's not planet bound; it's but not reality a, bound. But what a good story, right? You know, right, like to to try and fight something like that in a giant robot. And, and and how much? I mean, domestically, did did King Kong attribute to our love of Godzilla? I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, good King point. Kong, which is, I mean, the King Kong versus Godzilla, obviously, is something that we are we're all <laughs> cognizant of. But just seeing, I mean, that movie is one of the most impressive movies on a technical level. You, you, I mean, if you ever watch anything on King Kong, they made that movie in the 30s, and it is mathematically and production-wise one of the most intensive things. I mean, all of ILM would 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 vomit before taking on something like uh, Godzilla, oh, like like King Kong today. It's impressive, and I think it still has that core that we need for any giant monster story, which is what are we fighting and. You know, with the advent, but uh, looking at the U.S.'s possibility of possibly going into a World War II, it's a warning against colonialism. It's a warning mm-hmm. against going out into and, and taking over, and then it's also owning. a mirror. Yeah, it's right. Like a mirror uh, of what we can become and what we are. So, so what do these favorite monsters tell about us? Is the story is the the question I've just set you guys up for without telling you? Uh-huh. Uh, you've named your favorite <laughs> monsters. What do they tell us about us? And please, Tommy, do not have a monster burst from you. I will freak. Uh, do not have Dada rip out of your body, <laughs> please. But but I mean, what what I mean, obviously, like the warning aspect to me is, is something that like is 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 always that conscious reminder, and I, I think that's what's amazing about monsters as a metaphor, especially these. But in choosing your favorite monsters, what you've I mean, what is it? What is something that, that, that we're in, in you, George? Why, why would you choose that? I see. I see what you did here. You kind of I set did. us up. So, yeah. uh, now that I'm analyzing this, um, I think that I usually choose stories where my protagonists cannot ever win, but they do. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think that's why I chose my monster. Um, also, you want to always throw, as you guys know, uh, hurdles and conflict in front of the story. So you you. S- you know, a la what they did in Pacific Rim and Robotech, right? You know, in the beginning of Robotech, you're done. Like, it's over. The aliens have the high ground. They're destroying everything. But, oh, wait a minute. Maybe if you use this, you can fight them. So I think that's where the best storytelling uh, springs from. So mm-hmm. I guess I guess that's that's where I go, yeah. FJ? I think for me, it's funny. I wouldn't even thought of this. I, thought, I think a lot of it came from being a kid of the 80s with always a constant threat of a nuclear war or mm-hmm. something like that. But then also, I think, as it applied to why I would do something like 009 or some of the other stuff is uh, maybe why I liked Godzilla when he was defending the people as opposed to, uh, you know, just wrecking stuff. I think it was because I liked the idea that no matter how bad it got, there was a hopefulness to it. And there was a there was even if you had these powers or you had these abilities, et cetera you know, you would use it for the right thing. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think for me, it, it stuck into my head. I just thought of this literally while I was listening to him talk, was why do I like this stuff? I think I like it because no matter how bad it gets, there's always a way. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what it, it all speaks to me. And when you have, like, giant monsters with men in suits, it's almost like the unification <coughs> against the, like, the one. Right. You know, and it's, and, 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 and it's a very modern idea. You know, it, it, it's a very 20th, uh, 20th uh, century uh, idea 
uh, well, I know we're in the 21st now, but it kind of came out of the 20th century, uh, you know, w- that we should unite. Right. And we should unite against a common enemy. I think that's why I like Pacific Rim right. so much. Not to keep referencing it, but it's so current. Is I liked the international appeal. It reminded me of 009 where they're all international characters. Right. But Pacific Rim, I liked the idea of that it was humanity versus the threat as opposed to the Americans. That's my. That's a lot of my problems with like the Transformers movies and stuff. It's like the Americans are right. save us. I like the I like the worldview of uh, you know probably for the same reasons why the Japanese probably didn't like Pacific Rim. I liked it, mm-hmm. which was here's a worldview of it. We have a Chinese crew, we have Russian crew. We have, you know we have this guy, and uh, you know that this is this is the one. He's like I wanted Stan Lee's autograph, and you dragged me in this room to sit behind the panel. <laughs> <laughs> But the idea of that unification, and that, and that's why I think I liked um, Yamato when I first saw it, when it was when it was here as Star Blazers, which was everybody was forced underground and you know the bombing the Earth, and it was it, it wasn't inherently, and maybe I missed it because I saw it, I was introduced to it through the the U.S. context, but it always seemed like it was a threat against the world as opposed to just it was a Japanese battleship or a warship that uh, that they turned into a spaceship, but. Um, uh, I liked it because it, it was never. It had the nobility of what I, of the things I like about the Japanese culture that that nobility and that sacrifice and that he- heroism. But it was done in a way where anybody could enjoy it. It it, it didn't feel inclusive to the Japanese culture. Greg, what are you running from? I mean, uh, what's, what is it? To, what does your favorite monster say about you? I mean, that somebody should make that a meme or something or like a, one of those charts you see online. What is your pick a favorite monster? And what it says about you? <laughs> I was going to say, uh, talk about the reflective aspects of the monsters, mm-hmm. what they reflect uh, about us. But thinking about it, I enjoy them because it's always, we're always, we always come down to the wire in those films. Uh, and it's the uh, human ingenuity that is, at the end, uh, made the star. It's not so much what we come up with but the fact that we can come up with against absolutely impossible odds. Mm-hmm. Um, that has always appealed to me. It, just to let you guys know, Greg was canceling the apocalypse before canceling the apocalypse was cool. <laughs> All right? I mean, that's really what we're talking about here, <laughs> canceling the apocalypse. Uh, Tommy, how about yourself? Uh, you brought up something very interesting, which is um, uh, the threat of the sentient monster. And this reminds me of uh, Alien, the very first one is um, uh, it, it's, uh, it's actually a red herring that the alien is the monster because mm-hmm. the alien is just simply a force of nature. It's doing what it is ecologically directed to do. You know, that's just its life. The real monster is the company behind mother because if you really think about it, you know, our, our ourselves, humans, the companies that we create, we are the monsters – because the alien's just going to do what it's going to do because it needs to eat, live, and make babies. Whereas uh, these people, they're making conscious decisions to be, you know, absolute a holes. You know, we're going to be a holes because we can. You know, so uh, I would treat those as, you know, a reflection of our society. You know, like profit, profit motive over Everything. lives, treating thing, treating humans as expendable. You know, that that is the true monstrosity. And it's funny that Alien came out after, like, Network. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. a, like a movie that has a similar theme, yeah. but Network handles it that way. Yeah. And Dan O'Bannon and Alien handle it that way. Right. And it, they're really similar themes. I mean, it is, it is, it is human drama. Uh, I now want to open it up to you guys' questions, because obviously you guys are all here and passionate about aliens and monsters and kaiju and giant robots. Uh, if you guys have any questions for the specialists on the panel, uh, we can start with you, sir. Me? Question for FJ. What was your favorite Jaeger in Pacific Rim? The, 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 I was actually, sir, I was, you know, I was just watching it again with my wife, and I, I was all pissed off that the, the Chinese one got wiped out right away. Yeah, the, that was, I was really into that one. It had a cool interior, and so there's, I didn't know they made toys. I just saw toys here, so I'm, I was thinking of grabbing one of those. You can buy it for There's me. There's a $200 toy? <laughs> $400 down and you can have a new friend. There you go. And get yourself that Jaeger. I'll just find that kid. 
I mean, I love the beginning of that movie because it was, it was like around. watching Evangelion, just the whole thing come together. And then you have like the Street Fighter kind of intro to all the different teams. <laughs> and it just it felt like a best of, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The same way that Quentin Tarantino is like a best of, like different kind of genre films. Pacific Rim really felt like a best I mean, you're giggling the entire movie because it's shout outs to everything that you loved, you know? Uh, it was a fantastic mixtape to our just love of these kind of genres. Uh, another question for our friends here. I'll start with you, sir. No. Never. What are your experiences with Japanese rights holders and bringing the content possibly to the U.S.? Um, when we did this, when Carl brought the, uh, when he created Robotech and then continued with Streamline Pictures, which was his company, not Harmony Gold, um, his breakthrough approach was to approach the... He was also, besides other things, an expert in cinema and an expert in Japanese cinema, not just animation. He knew that there were all sorts of these series, feature films, that were excellent and had never been seen outside of Japan. So he calls up the rights holders and said, look, I will pay for the dubbing. I will pay for the distribution. I will pay for everything. I will make back my money, and I'll give you 50% of the profits. Who wouldn't? And that's how we were able to get so many of those uh, good films and series. Uh, they jumped on it. Now, things are different, but that's, that's how we created that, that wave. So we didn't have a bad experience uh, in, in that respect. Now they're hard to buy. And FJ, you have a continuous experience bringing some of that material out to the U.S., and you're working on it now. She's yelling at you, by the way. Oh, got it. Oh, how, many, um, how much time do I have left? You want, 30 more seconds. 30 more seconds. <laughs> I have hey, a really Jager, good relationship with the rights holders. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> and that was it. I mean, I mean, I mean, just to do the deal for the 009 graphic novel took almost a year. Mm-hmm. Just so more explaining the cultural differences, I think, is the hardest part. If we accept something like a Godzilla movie, if we make it big, if like Pacific Rim happens to produce a, a popular sequel that improves on the box office of the first, do you think that there will be loosening of strings in that kind of adaptation and bringing material from the East to the West? No, I'll tell you why. That's why? my gut, because Pacific Rim was born here. Right. I think if it was, if it was, I think Dragon Ball Z, to go back to that really quick, set a lot of that back a lot of years uh, in terms of live action filmmaking and I think you, that's why you see a focus on a lot of the classics now like Yamato Gachman being turned into low to mid budget uh, domestic movies in Japan there you have it um, guys I want to thank everybody on the panel um, it's amazing it's been quite the education thank you guys and uh, we'll see you guys at the rest of the convention <laughs>